Well, good morning, everyone. Can I add to the welcome that's already been given to you, especially if you're visiting with us? It's good to see you all here uh, this morning. Just a word of introduction before we continue our series and uh, turn to our reading for this morning. In 1968, and it's hard to think that's 40 years ago, isn't it? Um, I completed a university degree in biblical studies at Sheffield. Uh, And following that, I joined a missionary society. Many of you will know this, Wycliffe Bible Translators. And they suggested that I should do another year of further training with a practical component. Uh, And so I was sent north to Glasgow and spent a very happy year learning golf and other things at the Old Bible Training Institute uh, on Bothwell Street. Now, of course, the International Christian College. And my practical assignment was part of a team that went out into the Barras. If you don't know what the Barras are, the Barras are uh, the major street and indoor market in the east end of Glasgow, so-called because originally the traders used to bring uh, their wares on barrows. It's called Barrowland. You can go and see it, it's still there today. Uh, Though many of the second-hand traders have retired and... uh, moved to car boot sales. Uh, But in those days, it was a hive of activity uh, with thronging crowds and brilliant salesmen. It was an education in itself if you wanted to communicate just to watch those guys sell things on those stalls. Well, the strategy of the Bible College team was this. You would take a group of students out and find a suitable street corner Uh, One or two of them who were skilled on the guitar would begin to strike up some songs. We'd all sing in a loud and tuneful voice. And quite soon a big crowd of people would arrive. Uh, And when they gathered around, after the songs, one of the students would stand up and begin to speak, either a testimony or uh, a message from the Bible or just something very simple. Well, I still remember one of my early experiences. No sooner had the music stopped and the student began to speak, than suddenly a man in the crowd shouted out in a loud voice, Hey, Jimmy, I've got a question. And all the crowd, of course, turned to the guy, and to my utter amazement, the man in question had a Bible in his hand. I actually was standing quite close to him, and it was extremely well-worn and well-thumbed Bible. And everybody turned to this guy and he shouted out in a loud voice and opened his Bible and he said, here in the Bible, in Isaiah 6, verse 1, it says, Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, in John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, no man has seen God at any time. How do you explain that, Jimmy? You can imagine... There was a roar of approval from the crowd. And then utter silence as every eye fixed on the student. And I uttered a fervent thanksgiving prayer that it wasn't me. (laughs) Of course, the questioner didn't really want an answer to his question. And I discovered as I went week after week and got to know this guy and his friends, all with well-worn Bibles... I realized for them it was a kind of sport, stump a student, 
and preferably a new green one. Well, if you've been with us in our series in, in Luke's Gospel, as we've made our way through it, we've called it Good News of Great Joy for All People. Uh, we've seen something very interesting, how when Jesus preached in the open air, as he constantly did, people often had questions in the crowd. Some of them were genuine questions from serious seekers. You may remember, we met a, a young man who was very rich in Luke chapter 18, who had a question. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But some of them were trick questions from hostile opponents that were trying to catch Jesus out or discredit him. And today, in our study in Luke's Gospel, we come to the end of those sort of questions. Two more questions. And they're about subjects that we always say are, are unavoidable. These are questions about death and taxes. So, let's turn to the Bible and read it, and then see what we can learn from it. It will help to have a Bible. There are Bibles in the pews. Just turn and help yourself to one if you haven't got one. Luke 20, we're going to read verses 20 through 40. It's in the pew Bibles, it's on page 1055. Luke 20, if you just go back to verse 19 in the last of our series, um, Jesus had confounded the teachers of the law and the chief priests. They weren't very pleased. Verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, the parable of the tenants. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. Uh, they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman, died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him 
all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. Well, this is God's word. I'm just going to focus on this morning. Very clearly you can see from the way it's laid out in our Bibles, which of course came much later, there are two sections focusing on two questions. And although uh, the two questions focus specifically, uh, first of all on taxes and then on death and resurrection, they actually uh, have a much broader focus. Let me explain where we're going. You can follow then. Uh, The first question that was asked to Jesus is a political question with a present focus. And the second is a theological question with a future focus. Uh, So let's look at each question in turn and how Jesus answered them. Uh, First of all, a political question with a present focus. That's verses 20 to 26. Luke tells us that these questioners are not serious seekers, but rather spies. The word literally means, in the original Greek, it means someone who is hired to lie in wait. Those who've hired them are, of course, the teachers of the law and the chief priests who've just been confounded by Jesus, embarrassed before the people in their recent exchanges. Uh, They want to arrest Jesus, verse 19, but they're afraid to do so because of his popularity with the people. And so they send others to do their dirty work for them. They hope to incriminate Jesus by something he says in public. So they can then hand him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate by name, who will then deal with Jesus and they'll be absolved of any responsibility for his fate. So the spies pretend, Luke tells us, to be honest. That is sincere in their inquiry. And they begin, as people often do in these cases, by trying to catch Jesus off his guard by a bit of flattery. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. That you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, although they don't believe this, what they say is actually absolutely accurate about Jesus. He does teach what is orthodox. He doesn't show partiality even to religious leaders and high officials and rich people. And he does teach what God's word says in accordance with the truth. But having tried to catch him off guard, they they then ask their question. It's not just a trick question. It's actually a very tricky question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 22. Now, you need to understand that the the taxes in question here are not general sort of taxes. You know, income tax, property tax, land tax, tax, uh, goods taxes. The Jews had to pay such taxes to the Roman authorities uh, through agents like the man we met recently, Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. No, although no Jew, or I suppose no person, likes taxes or, well, tax collectors are just doing a job, aren't they? But uh, the question Jesus asked here, the word used for tax here, is a very specific tax. It's actually a poll tax that the Romans imposed upon every citizen in all the different countries that they dominated and had conquered. It it, it marked the payment of tribute to Rome. You were acknowledging every person who gave this said, I am under the authority of Rome. Uh, If you can think back to the late 1980s, to the community charge, which was called often the poll tax, um, introduced by the Conservative government, and the reaction it aroused, not least in Scotland, you'll get some idea of the kind of popularity that this had among the Jews themselves. 
And this was exacerbated, as we'll learn in a moment, uh, by a religious dimension. For if you paid taxes as a Jew, if you paid this tribute tax, you were in effect acknowledging that Rome was the ultimate authority. And for a serious, sincere, pious Jew, uh, that took some swallowing. So when Jesus is asked this question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a very tricky question. If he answers yes, Jesus will lose popularity with the people. He's kowtowing to Rome. If he answers no, then Jesus will be in trouble with the Romans. Uh, And it's clear that those who have asked the question hope that Jesus will actually say no so that he, he can then be reported back to the Roman authorities. But it seems, if you look at it, a no win situation. For Jesus is asked one of those either-or questions. He's got to make a choice one way or the other. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Luke, Michael Wilcoats explains, they wanted him either to endorse the paying of tribute, which would make him a traitor to his people, or to condemn it, which would make him a traitor to the occupying forces of Rome. Notice then the amazing response of Jesus. He's not taken in by their sincerity or supposed sincerity of or by their pretense. In Matthew's account of this, it's mentioned also in Matthew and in Mark, uh, this incident, Jesus initially responds by saying to them, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? I know you're pretending. Jesus is not tricked by their tricky question. Instead of so often, he asks them a question instead. The question Jesus asked. He says, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Now, the denarius was a small silver coin minted by the Romans in millions. I just did a quick check on the internet. You can buy one from the first century. Cost you about £100, depending on condition, up to about three or £400. But in those days, it was worth nothing. Well, it was actually, the denarius was the payment for a day labourer. It was a day labourer's wage. And it's no surprise then that those who are in the crowd can immediately produce one. It's not like standing in a crowd and saying, hand me a 50 pound note, you know, who's going to have a 50 pound note? Well, maybe, I don't know, but uh, if, if I said, you know, give me, a, give me a 10 pence piece, probably quite a few of us uh, 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 have got 10 pence pieces if we put them in the offering or whatever. Anyway, um, and it's no surprise that they know the answer to his question. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? The portrait on the denarius is that of Caesar. It's actually Tiberius, the Roman emperor. And the inscription says in Latin, for those who can't read it on the screen and don't know Latin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And on the obverse side of the coin is a picture of his mother who was called Livia, depicted as the goddess of peace. And it says in inscription there, high priest in Latin. Now, for the Jew... Any portraits were regarded as a breaking of the second of the Ten Commandments. You shall not have, uh, make any image or idol of anything. And inscriptions claiming deity were blasphemous. Yet those who questioned Jesus, almost any Jew, carried them around as common currency without any qualms of conscience. The point is obvious, which is why Jesus then gives the answer he does to their original question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? But notice what he adds. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Instead of answering their either or question, 
Jesus gives them a both and answer. They are to give to Caesar what is rightfully his, but also to God what is rightfully his as well. Another commentator, Howard Marshall, writes, Men who use Caesar's money must pay Caesar's taxes, but at the same time they are to pay to God what is owing to him. Now, this simple answer of Jesus is the closest to any political statement that he ever made in the Gospels. Yet it's amazing how much people have built upon it. It's been used to support the medieval doctrine of the divine right of kings. Other people say it points to Jesus' teaching that there are two kingdoms in the world, Caesar's kingdom, the kingdom of of men, and a separate kingdom, the kingdom of God. In other words, a division between what is sacred and what is secular. However, what Jesus is simply acknowledging here in his response is that a civil government has the right to maintain itself through the contribution of its citizens. But within that authority is the absolute authority that God must have in all areas of life. So, first and foremost, we are to submit to God's authority. This is the first of the Ten Commandments, which every Jew would know. You shall have no other gods before me. But God has also delegated authority to human governments. So, as the Apostle Paul, here's the Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in Rome of all places. What does he say about their relationship to Rome? How should they relate to the Roman authorities? He says you should submit to human authorities. Romans 13 verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Only where there is a conflict of allegiance, which Jesus doesn't deal with here, must the Christians say, as the early Christians had to do on at least one occasion, we must obey God rather than men. That's Acts verse 29 in all of the circumstances Christians should be good and loyal citizens you cannot say because you're a Christian I'm not going to get involved and I'm not going to pay taxes much so you might like to and we have the right and privilege in our democracies to appoint those to govern who seek to follow God's ways but there is more to this incident as well before we turn to the second question Uh, The spies sent by the religious leaders are frustrated in their attempts to trap Jesus. They're astonished by his answer. Luke records they have nothing more to say. But they fail to draw the right conclusion about Jesus. All that he says and does should point to one conclusion. That he is the chosen one of God that they've been expecting. So, they and we should also submit to Christ's authority and acknowledge who he is. The tragedy is, of course, that they fail to recognize this. And in a few days, their questions turn to actions. They conspire to have him killed. And what do they say when they come before the Roman authorities? If you've got your Bible open there, just turn over to chapter 23. We'll come to it later, God willing. Verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We've found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. And astonishingly, his Jews, when Pilate the Roman governor asked them, Shall I crucify your king? They answered, John 19:15. amazingly, they say, 
We have no king but Caesar. But God raised him from the dead. It's what we've celebrated today at this table. Now, songs. This is the day when he rose again. Vindicating his claims. So on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, speaking to the crowds, many of whom had been complicit in the death of Jesus, concludes by saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36 And so now he says, you must repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You must submit to the authority of Christ because God has demonstrated without question that he is indeed Christ and Lord. The question is, to them and to us, have you done that? Or are you still full of tricky questions? Which if you're quite honest, even if we answered all of them, would still not convince you to follow Jesus Christ. That is the real issue. Avoiding the real identity and authority of Jesus. So that's the first question, the question about taxes. Let's move on quickly. The second question is a theological one with a future focus, verses 27 to 40. Uh, The question has changed, but not their intention. There are some very strange bedfellows who come together to conspire against Jesus. For the group now mentioned, the Sadducees, were sworn enemies of the Pharisees and the other religious leadership. The Sadducees were a very small group in Israel. We're not absolutely sure about their origins, but we do know a bit about them. They were wealthy, aristocratic. They favoured the status quo, and so they were quite happy to cooperate with Rome. And they prided themselves on their rationalism. So they discounted anything supernatural, like the existence of angels. And as we see here, life after death. It's a common misconception among people today uh, that ancient peoples were all beset by superstition and that skepticism and cynicism uh, date from the birth of Richard Dawkins. Uh, But such people were alive and well in ancient Greece, if you know your history, and here in Israel with the Sadducees. And they rejected all the extra teachings that had been built on the law by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They revered only the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the books of Moses. So it's not surprising that they introduced their hypothetical question of a hypothetical situation uh, drawn from the law of Moses. Uh, you need to know the background here. They're quoting from the law of Moses. Uh, if you look again at chapter 20, and um, they say in verse 28, Teacher Moses wrote for us about a man's brother dying and leaving his wife but no children. The quote is from Deuteronomy. This is what it says. If brothers are living together, one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Uh, This practice of a brother marrying his dead brother's widow is known as levirate marriage from the Latin word for husband's brother, Levere, it was practiced in ancient societies so that family names were maintained and the property as well was kept within the family. So the Sadducees say, now based on this uh, ancient law of Moses which you agree with and which we agree with, um, they tell this story uh, in which not just the first brother died, but the second and so on, down to the seventh brother, all with no children. Seven brothers only one wife. I'm sure there's a note of humor here as they tell the story. Uh, Rabbi, they say, this man, you, you know, he's married and he died. 
and they had no children. So his second brother took the wife, and he died, and they had no children. The third brother, you can imagine the crowd, you know, you're thinking, who wants to be married to a woman like this? You know, <laughs> pretty risky business. <laughs> and you work your way down to the seventh brother. By the time you got the seventh brother, they then asked this ridiculous question. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. You can almost hear the listeners roaring with laughter. But it's no laughing matter to ridicule the resurrection. As we see in the answer of Jesus. Who first, he does two things. He first answers that question about marriage. And then he asserts a very powerful truth about life after death. So let's just look at them in turn. First of all, teachings about relationships in marriage. Jesus says, there are two ages through which we pass, whoever we are. There is our life on earth, which is called this present age, where there is marriage. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, verse 34. But there is also life after death, resurrection, the future age, where there is no marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Jesus says, in that future age, when we leave this life, marriage will no longer be necessary for procreation, for people will never die. And in this respect, Jesus says that those who enjoy this resurrection life will be like the angels. Notice he doesn't say this sentimental idea that we'll be angels. No, we won't. We'll be like angels in this respect of marriage and procreation. There are no baby angels, as far as I know. Now, this doesn't mean, for those who are getting worried at this point, who are happily married, um, that you will not know or love your marriage partner or, or partners from earth, but that all our relationships will be superseded by something far better and more glorious and tainted by sin and all its effects. We will enjoy the most perfect and fulfilling relationship of all as children of God, as children of the resurrection age, which supersedes and replaces all other relationships, even the best. But notice carefully something we might miss, which Jesus indicates to the Sadducees. Not everyone will enjoy that kind of future resurrection life of bliss. But Jesus says it is only for those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age. Skeptics like the Sadducees will miss out, not on resurrection, but on resurrection bliss, for there is a resurrection judgment which is not dealt with here. Not just because they don't believe in the resurrection, but because they don't have a relationship with the living God. So Jesus continues to challenge them with teaching about relationships with God. Now, there was evidence from the Hebrew Scriptures about resurrection. It's not a prominent theme, probably the best verse, if you wanted to quote it, would be Daniel 12, verse 2. If you're making notes, you can look it up later. But Jesus knows that they respect the law of Moses. And so he chooses to demonstrate the point about resurrection from the Torah, which the Sadducees claim to believe. Now, of course, the chapters and verses we have in our Bibles didn't come till much, much later. So when you refer back to a story, you refer to it by its name or the incident, sort of what it was called. So the Lord Jesus quotes from a key story from the book of Exodus to demonstrate that God is the God of the patriarchs. So he doesn't say in the account of Exodus 3 verse 6, he says in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in the desert, that burned and was not burned up, he did not say, Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. No, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Which means that they are not dead. They are still in a living relationship with the living God. So the conclusion is that Jesus makes so powerfully and forcefully, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Verse 38, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Daryl Buck, another commentator, writes, the point is that the patriarchs are not dead, and neither are God's promises to them. For the promises to the patriarchs to come to pass, and for God to be their God, resurrection must be a reality. Jesus says resurrection is a reality. In John's Gospel, he has recently met with a grieving sister, grieving over the death of her brother, and made an astounding claim. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Words we often quote, funeral services. And then he asked her and us the crucial question. Do you believe this? And I simply ask you this morning, never mind the tricky questions and the hypothetical situations, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe if you trust in Him, you have the assurance that when you die, you have that eternal resurrection life? The Sadducees don't believe in Jesus, despite the compelling evidence. And the teachers of the law, who actually, because it supports their position on this particular theological point, say, well done, teacher, good point, you've made the point, we, we believe that. But they don't believe in Jesus. And Luke concludes this section of his gospel by reporting there are no more questions. No one dared ask him any more questions. Questions answered. Arguments lost. The strange alliance of Pharisees, Sadducees, all the establishment, resort to actions that will lead in a few short days to a trial before the Roman governor and a brutal execution on a cross. But this will be the means to resurrection life. For God's plan, as we'll see in this series, as we draw it to a conclusion, God's plan is still in place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. Just a final word before I conclude and we sing a hymn. To those, and probably there are some of you here, who are still thinking about the opening illustration and how to answer the question of the man in the virus. Here in the Bible, in Isaiah 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. But in John 1, 18, it says, No man has seen God at any time. How do you explain that? There is, of course, an answer. But not a neat soundbite answer. Instead, perhaps a better response, which I didn't think of at the time, would be like the Lord Jesus Christ to respond to the man in an equally loud voice and to say, could you read the second half of John 1 verse 18? Here it is. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. And to say to the questioner, my friend, he has made him known in the person of his son Jesus. Have you recognized him? Have you received him? 
as your Saviour and Lord? That's a far more important question than all the questions we might raise and even get answers to. This is what is recorded of Jesus earlier in John 1. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And I conclude by asking you, have you received him? Have you believed on his name? You know what it is to be a child of God. Now and for all eternity. You know what it is to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Saviour. Let's pray together. In these final moments, let's think not just of questions we have but the answers Jesus gives and the promises he makes I am the resurrection the life he who believes in me will live forever you believe this Lord God thank you for the compelling evidence of who Jesus is and the compelling demonstration that all that he did was successful a mission accomplished when you raised him from the dead. Help us therefore to look at the answers and to recognize and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord so that we have that assurance that whenever our lives come to an end, when this present age is completed, we have the hope of an eternal future, certain hope in him who is the resurrection and the life even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.